I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Foxhole, finding shelter in science, philosophy, and faith. This week, Deepak Chopra, a pioneer in the world of mind-body healing, says that what we're feeling in this pandemic is actually grief for an old world that felt normal and safe. For many people, this is the first time questions of mortality are front and center. And now we need to discover the meaning. What is the reason why we take our existence for granted? What would happen if we didn't, if we were conscious of our mortality right from the start? And then grief expert David Kessler says part of the challenge of this pandemic is that our culture likes to pretend death doesn't exist. So we've sanitized this world that has made us so death-fearing and death-illiterate. And if we don't like what we're seeing on TV, we can pause it and we get to real life and there's no pause button. That's all coming up on KCRW's Foxhole. Deepak Chopra is a pillar in the world of mind-body healing. Born in India, he became a successful doctor in America, until burnout and poor health brought him back to his eastern roots. He adopted and galvanized practices that have now become mainstream. Yoga, meditation, healthy eating habits. His work integrates philosophical insights from Hinduism and other traditions with science and Western medicine. And when Chopra's work was hailed by Oprah, he instantly became a household name. Now in his 70s, Chopra still writes and teaches prolifically. His newest book is called Meta-Human, Unleashing Your Infinite Potential. He joins us today from his home in Southern California. Deepak Chopra, welcome to KCRW. We appreciate the time. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Let's talk about this this kind of incredible moment that we're in um, and, and what it's been like for you. I mean... This pandemic has changed so many lives, and, and, and I'm sure you have some interesting perspectives on this, um, considering your work as a mind-body healer, as a doctor. I mean, tell me just how you have been doing and what's been going through your mind in the last couple months. Well, just to put things in perspective, when I was growing up as a little kid in India, my father used to tell me stories about the Holocaust, about the atomic bomb, about the Second World War, about uh, uh, the great uh, suffering that occurred uh, when I was born. India, Pakistan split up. There were mass migrations and literally millions of people died. Um, This is around, as I said, the time I was born. My grandfather uh, used to tell me about the Great Depression 100 years ago and the First World War and the suffering that uh, happened in his generation. So if you look historically, actually every generation, there has been something that has caused a global um, existential anxiety, if that's what we want to call it, existential anxiety, suffering, and even um, the fear of death globally. So uh, while we think this is a unique moment in history, it's not. It's the, it's the recycling of human experience and also the recycling, to a great extent in my mind, of our taking uh, existence for granted. As a physician, you know, I always uh, am surprised that people take their existence for granted till the moment they're given a terminal diagnosis or somebody else in the family dies or they get old and they have infirmity and they're facing the fear of death. Only then 
Do they even ask themselves, what is the meaning of my existence? Uh, the, otherwise, we are like biological robots that completely recycle our, um, our cultural uh, mind, which is really a hypnosis of conditioning that we are like biological robots. Now we are forced at this moment to find meaning in our existence. As a, as a physician, I've seen this, you know, I've seen this many times. Whenever there is loss of a way of living or any kind of loss, uh, people go through grief. This is what is happening right now. Uh, I've seen people go through the stages of grief uh, in emergency rooms when they're going through the throes of a heart attack. And in one hour before they die, um, or approximately, uh, you know, a few minutes, they go through all the stages. First, there is uh, victimization. Why me? Well, it's not just me. It's everyone. Second stage is anger and uh, hostility. Uh, the third stage is frustration. The fourth stage is uh, a, a type of resignation and helplessness. And then, only then, do some people find acceptance. I've seen this happen in an emergency room within an hour in a patient who's going through a heart attack who's going to die. I've seen them going through all the stages and then finally some people find acceptance and suddenly you see peace and some people find meaning. Right now we're in that stage. We are in the stage of um, between frustration, resignation and acceptance and now we need to discover the meaning. What is the reason why we take our existence for granted. What would happen if we didn't, if we, were, if we were conscious of our mortality right from the start and conscious that we contribute to a lot of our suffering directly and indirectly, then we would live a different life. So this is an opportunity for us to reinvent our bodies and resurrect our souls. I've done this all my life, but I found these last few weeks even more gratifying and as I look outside my window, I see the sky is clearer, the ocean is bluer. I hear from uh, other parts of the world that uh, fish are uh, now back in uh, what were supposedly dead lakes. Uh, there are even fish in the canals of Venice. People are breathing better in Hyderabad. You can look at the Himalayas from hundreds of miles away. The stars are bright and lit even in polluted cities and the birds are singing. Existence is telling us, humans, go back to your cages for a little while. When you come back, come back with a little more humility, a little more reverence for the sanctity and the sacredness of existence. Existence will take care of itself. Humans are right now um, in the phase between grief, acceptance, and meaning. I know one poet you love, and I do too. He's from India. That's Tagore. And you've used yeah. his, his quote before, and I love this. It's, that I exist is a perpetual surprise. That kept coming to my mind as you were talking there, because I think you, you hit on some really important and profound themes, which is how we just do not show reverence for our lives. And that uh, perhaps it's moments like these, uh, in this moment of upheaval, where we do a little bit of a new evaluation. Does that sound right? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that's a beautiful phrase from Tagore, that I exist is a perpetual surprise. 
And so I think if you're not perpetually surprised by your existence, your humanity is incomplete. You know, to be human is to have a story about existence. And um, we have had this very, very biased story about existence in that it's all about us. When life, in fact, is an ecosystem, every biological organism is an ecosystem. Even your genetic code is an ecosystem. Every biological organism is an ecosystem of bacteria, of viruses, of fungi, of all other life forms. In fact, there are 200 times more genes in your body that are not human, that are derived from bacteria, fungi, uh, viruses of all kinds. And every species, by the way, in one way or another, finds equilibrium with its environment. Every species. There are only two species on the planet that don't find equilibrium with their environment. One is uh, viruses and the other is humans. In that sense, we are just like viruses. We do not find equilibrium with the ecosystem that sustains us. We don't realize that we have a personal body and a universal body, and they're both equally ours. The air is our breath. The rivers and waters are our circulation. The earth is recycling as our body. Um, the atoms in your body were forged in the crucible of burning stars. Um, so the light is uh, the light of awareness, not just photons. So when you look at the existence, as um, this self-regulating, self-organizing, homeostatic uh, existence of every life form, then you realize that if you are the sole predator, a permanently victorious species on planet Earth, then at some point that permanently victorious species risks its extinction. Yeah, and there's a lot of there's a lot of things in what you said that I think are that are fascinating. And um, it makes me think again of the word humility that you used earlier in terms of uh, understanding our position now and maybe using that word as we move forward. But you know, it, it makes me think a lot about your work over the last decades, which has been integrative, which has been uh, pushing um, uh, mind-body connections um, and trying to kind of understand our place in these greater ecosystems. You know, I wonder, uh, 90 books in, decades of teaching, do you feel that we as a Western society are getting closer to, to kind of that, to that equilibrium with our, with our ecosystem that you just talked about? Yes and no. I mean, it's taken a long time. Yes, I've been thinking about this, writing about this, reflecting on this, uh, speaking about this for 45 years. And um, I think there is a movement in the world that is looking at integrative solutions to problems. But, you know, we have been brought up in a culture um, throughout the ages, and it's not just the West, it's also the East. You know, we tend to romanticize about the East uh, because of the few luminaries, the sages of the Upanishads, poets and sages like Tagore, uh, the same way we do about ancient Greece, you know, Parmenides and Socrates and Plato and Hippocrates. But the vast majority of people um, throughout history, uh, throughout human civilization, have been in a survival mode. And as a result of that, uh, we are actually 
not only predators, we think in terms of violence. You know, we have metaphors like uh, of war for everything. Even right now, the war on COVID-19, the war on drugs, the war on poverty, the war on climate change, the war on social and economic injustice, war, 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 war on terrorism, war on war. It doesn't make sense. There's no creative solution do anything if your metaphor is violence. Uh, but if your metaphor is creativity, then you actually see the interconnectedness and the interdependence of everything, whether it's financial structures in the world or whether it's other institutions or whether it's trade or it's communication or it's culture. Uh, all of this now is very uh, clear that we live in an interconnected, interdependent, um, inseparable existence. And therefore, when we um, give, um, give uh, energy to extreme nationalism, to religious fundamentalism, to any ideology, to any ideological framework, whether it's a religion or a philosophy or a theology or even scientism, I'm not saying science, science is a methodology, uh, which is very useful for creating technology. It's based on observation, it's based on experiment, theory, validation, falsification, but scientism, and there are a lot of apostles of scientism, is an ideology, it's a dogma. It says, you know, the scientific method can help us explain everything from inspiration to insight to creativity to imagination to vision to higher consciousness, uh, no matter what it is. The scientific methodology can explain it. It's obvious that it can't because science itself is an activity in our consciousness. So, you know, we are living a fragmented life uh, by getting bamboozled by our constructs and our stories that we invented. Just the way we invented money, the way we invented Wall Street, the way we invented Greenwich Mean Time, latitude, longitude, nation states, we forget these are human constructs based on a limited understanding of reality. Unless we understand that, what is it that is at the source of all experience, we are still looking at ourselves as biological robots. And as long as we are biological robots, we will continue to recycle suffering, period. So I think the, the question out of this is, um, how do we tap into or access what you're talking about? This kind of deeper well in us, the subconscious or unconscious or, or whatever, whatever it is that makes us a more integrative creature. And I mean, of course, my mind immediately goes to some of the work that you've talked about, whether it's, it's meditation or uh, different forms of yoga or, or could be lots of things. But I mean, how do we take that step? Because on one level, um, this sounds kind of complex, but where do we go? Well, there are four levels of experience that we all have as humans, but uh, um, these four levels probably exist in all biological organisms. So let me enumerate them. Uh, the first is being, the second is feeling, the third is thinking, and then the fourth is speaking and doing. So we call ourselves human beings because that's how we start. When a child is born, 
it's just a being and it has feeling of course but very little reflective thought and of course no language and no conscious choice making just a simple bundle of being our fundamental state of existence is awareness prior to any feeling prior to any thought prior to any reflection prior to any speech prior to any action we are human beings not human feelings not human thinking not human doings but human beings so when we are in default mode as in sleep for example uh, deep sleep dreamless sleep or when we are sitting quietly doing nothing or when we are watching our breath or when we are feeling the sensations in our body or when we are looking at uh, any thought that comes across the screen of awareness but not engaging in any activity just being simply the default mode before any experience that is the highest intelligence being is the highest intelligence to be able to look at the world and look at yourself with no judgment is to go into this default mode of being which is our fundamental state in that state is perfect homeostasis and self regulation a human body can think thoughts play a piano kill germs remove toxins make a baby all at the same time whilst monitoring the movement of stars and planets as its biological rhythms your circadian rhythms your seasonal rhythms lunar rhythms all your biological activity is a mirror of the activity of the total universe and you're not doing anything consciously to self regulate right now you're not using your conscious mind to regulate your heart rate or your blood pressure or your immune responses or your endocrine responses or your digestive processes you're not concerned with whether your stomach is digesting food or your head is growing hair if it is growing hair still um it's all being taken care of by what we refer to in biology as the autonomic nervous system but the autonomic nervous system is actually uh, a, a very aware system that's monitoring everything that is happening in your body right now if something were to go wrong even a little bit you would feel it you know you would feel a, a tightness in your muscles or a knot in your stomach or some kind of disturbance disease from the state of ease that's the highest intelligence and everything is happening all by itself you're not doing anything right now to regulate your biology that's the most fundamental level of our existence now meditation mindful awareness watching your breath being a non-judgmental observer of uh, what is happening around you making conscious choices this actually brings activity to our conscious mind and our conscious mind the contents of our conscious mind can only focus on one thing at a time right now if i asked you um can you count the number of e's or the number of um a's or i's in my speech if you were to do that you wouldn't be able to hear what i'm saying uh, you know if you were to focus on every sentence every word every letter every alphabet in my speech you wouldn't be able to listen to me so your conscious mind can only do one thing at 
a time. And mindful awareness means simply that, to be fully aware of experience in the moment and choices in the moment. That's the highest intelligence. So uh, you mentioned the word yoga. The word yoga is actually related to the English word yoke. Yoke or unity or connection with the source of all experience, which is our own consciousness, which is our own awareness. You know, I, I, I'm speaking to you today from Santa Barbara, California. This is a place of, of healers. It's a place of every uh, corner. We do find, for example, yoga studios or places for people to receive some type of uh, healthful treatment. And I wonder if you're happy with how, let's say, this part of California or the U.S. has adopted some of these things that you're talking about. I mean, I see so many people go, for example, to yoga here, but it seems that what the West has done with it is almost a commodification, or there's a word I like, which is a spiritual materialism. We go not necessarily to explore our interior, but to get stronger or better abs or to uh, to be more successful in making money at our job. So I wonder, do, do you think that we're actually kind of following through with what you're talking about? Or if we've kind of gone in a different direction with a lot of this idea of mind-body healing? So here's the thing. The commodification or commoditization of yoga and meditation or all these integrative techniques is actually the only way that people will ultimately find the meaning of existence. That's how the West works. Better commodify uh, spiritual materialism then commodify the sale of mechanized death and nuclear weapons and biological warfare or um, or every of the th- all the things that we commercialize you know from cigarettes to alcohol to every kind of activity that is detrimental so what is wrong with the commodification of spiritual materialism it doesn't matter people start yoga because they want to give up smoking. They want better abs. They want to lose weight. They want to look better. Never mind. It's all right. Sooner or later, they'll bump into their self. It happens. You know, when, when I started meditation and yoga, I was a smoker, by the way, and I was a periodic binge drinker. I was a stressed out internist, a neuroendocrinologist, who couldn't take care of himself, but was advising his patients. So my reason for starting yoga and meditation was I wanted to give up smoking. And here I am talking about with you about the meaning of our existence. So that was my journey too. Well, keeping this all in mind, I want to turn to our first theme that we hit on today, which is grief or an existential anxiety, as you put it. You're now in your 70s, and I wonder how much you think of your own mortality Traditionally, in my, in my culture, my children are, of course, American. They were born here, so even though they're ethnically Indian, both parents are from India, they're American, so they're, of course, uh, products of this culture. But where I came from, you know, there were four ashramas of life, four segments that life was divided into, and they're called ashramas, ashram is a common word, you know, it's a retreat or place you go to find meaning. And so the first ashram is the first 25 years of life when you gather as much knowledge and education as you can. The second ashram 
is you work hard and you um, are ambitious and you create fame and fortune. In fact, fame and fortune is, uh, is part of the quest for meaning. That's the second ashrama till the age of 50. The third ashrama is uh, giving back. So from the age of 50 to the age of 75, I'm in my third ashrama, giving back right now. And then the fourth ashrama starts at the age of 75 and goes up to 100, even in our age of ignorance. You're supposed to live at least 100 years. And then that fourth ashrama, you actually go beyond giving back and seek self-realization. You go into, actually, traditionally, you die to the world. You go into a forest. And as far as the world is concerned, you, are not, you don't exist anymore on this plane. And in those four 20, 20, last 25 years, you actually realize, realize the self, which is you go beyond all constructs that we have about reality to fundamental reality. What is fundamental reality? What is the self? And you seek liberation from all systems of thought. And, you know, the great spiritual teachers of the world say the unconditioned mind is spaceless, timeless, borderless, infinite, formless. And yet without it, there would be no experience of form or phenomena. What is that? Can you find that? Whatever you want to call it, Allah, divine self, God, Ein Sof, Brahman, Fundamental reality, a causal, non-local reality doesn't matter. But unless you find who you are, the ancient question, who are you? What are you? Who am I? That is the source of fulfillment. Without that, you will experience what is called human suffering, which comes from not knowing fundamental reality, grasping and clinging at experience, which is transient, uh, resisting the moment, which is now, um, uh, being uh, bamboozled by a false construct called the ego, and the fear of death. These are the causes of human suffering. And there's no physical or economic uh, solution to these causes of suffering. It doesn't matter. You're a Bill Gates or you're in a prison in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey. You're on the same level. It doesn't matter whether who you are um, or what you are. When it comes to human existential, existential suffering, you're at the same level. And the only solution is to find out who you really are. That's the fourth stage of life. And when I get up in the morning, by the way, that's all I think of. That's all I think of when I close my eyes at night to go to sleep. That's all I think of when I wake up. And then with that understanding, I ask myself, how can I help? That's it. And then I don't worry about who listens or who doesn't. It's like Rumi in his poetry says, I want to sing like birds sing, not worrying who listens or what they think. Well, Deepak Chopra, thank you so much for this conversation today on KCRW. We, we really appreciate the time. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you very much. This is KCRW's Foxhole. I'm Jonathan Bastian. One theme that Deepak Chopra hit on right at the beginning of our conversation 
was how the pandemic has created this sense of communal grief. In other words, we're all mourning something. It could literally be a loved one who's recently passed away, or maybe it's just the life we led before COVID-19, which is also gone. This is an idea that's been heavily on the mind of David Kessler. He's an expert in grief and has written a number of books on the subject. His most recent is called Finding Meaning, the Sixth Stage of Grief. He joins us this morning from his home in Los Angeles. Well, David Kessler, welcome to the program. Oh, I'm really glad to be with you. Thank you for doing this. Well, I mean, we just heard Deepak Chopra a second ago talk about that what we are experiencing right now is grief. And this is something that, that you have written about and talked about kind of uh, well before this interview. But but I wanted to kind of get your take on this because, you know, for, for a lot of us, these feelings over the last few months have, have felt like a lot of things, anxiety or depressions or emotions relating to isolation. But um, it, it sounds like grief is a word that, that really resonates with you. And does that seem like the right description for it? Yeah, it's very interesting that we we don't usually talk in the language of grief. And just like you've mentioned, I've had so many people reach out and friends and colleagues and saying, I have this heaviness at night. I'm sad when I walk down the street and, you know, I don't know what's going on with me. And I'm like, you're describing feelings of grief. And we tend to think about grief as uh, something that lives only in the uh, sense of a loved one dying. But grief is really about change, and usually a change we did not want. And so when we look at the world we're in, it's really hard for us to grasp that two months ago, we lived in a world that we will never be able to be there again. You know, it's a little like we walked into the room and the door closed behind us, and we turn to go back out of it, and it's locked forever. And I think that's just, you know, we have to acknowledge that sadness about that. We have to um, acknowledge how strange this is and how, you know, people have different reactions, whether it's anger or sadness. But there's a collective grief in the air now that I don't think we felt so globally before as we are now. Mm. Could you compare this to kind of other major moments in history? I mean, World War One or two or other kind of traumatic instances or, or 9-11. I mean, is, is sure. this something that's applicable to those, do you think? Well, it's, it's, you know, there's lessons always to be learned in history. So we can get a lot out of it. But this is certainly different in the sense of a few things. Number one, when you look at the AIDS epidemic, when you look at 9-11, uh, the Vietnam War, one, we've always been able to bury our dead. So this is really unprecedented that we can't have funerals, we're not able to bury our dead, that strange world we're in. The other thing we see is a lot of those events were a lot of death, but in a very short period of time. I mean, 9-11, you know, the, the, the traumatic events themselves were, were over pretty quickly. Um, and so we look now, and this is much more of a prolonged experience that we're all having. We keep hoping it's going to be over in a couple of weeks or be over in a month, but it's this long, prolonged experience that none of us could have seen coming. So it's different in that way also. And the last thing is, 
there's something about it's in how invisible it is. That, for example, you know, our primitive mind is geared that we see a lion and we know, oh my gosh, I gotta, you know, I gotta run. There's an enemy out there that's an invisible virus that it could be on the doorknob, it could be in the grocery store, it could be on your loved one. I mean, how unnerving is that? So we're actually grappling with a lot right now. And it's interesting how you mentioned the prolonged aspect of this, because to me, that also reminds me of grief in a way, in the way that it's not something that just you kind of deal with and it goes away, but anyone who's lost a loved one realizes that it kind of lingers and it circles back and it's unexpected, right? Well, exactly. And, you know, many people falsely think that we get over grief, we recover from grief, we recover from a loss. The reality is, is we learn to live with it. And that's kind of just like you say, what we're having to do with this. We're learning to live with this. And we were all hoping, this is like, you know, when you think about like Kubler-Ross's stages that her and I worked on, you know, you think about like the bargaining stage, we were like, all right, let me get this straight. I have to stay home two weeks and then everything's going to be back to normal. That's the deal, right? I'm good. And now it's like, wait a minute, the deal's changing. I don't like this. There's no clear end date. Now, what is important for us to understand is there is no night that hasn't given way to a new day. There is no storm that didn't pass. This will pass. This will end someday. We don't have the date, and that is a very worrisome concept to our brain. But we do have to remind our brain, this will end at some point. We're going to go to, just like we talk about in grief, the new normal. No one's going to like the new normal. I live in Los Angeles, and I have a commercial street just a couple of streets away from me that has the restaurants and the Starbucks and the stores and all those places I just have always loved walking to. I went there the other night with my dog and we took a walk. They're boarded up, they're empty. And even as like the Starbucks was beginning to reopen, I just had such a sadness that it's not going to be like it was. It's never going to be that way again. It will be different and it will come back, but there is a shift we're all having to grapple with. It's really interesting to me to think about things like the ending of a relationship as grief, because as someone, I, you know, I, I lost my mother at a younger age and I've also been through relationships that have come and gone. And, and while there's certain, you know, an intensity to these different experiences, it is true that losing a relationship uh, on any way, whether it's to death or a breakup, does kind of uh, trigger grief. But we don't ever really think about it that way. We kind of try and give it a different language or spin it in a different direction. Why is that? Well, I think because we're just not accustomed to the broadness of grief. And, you know, we're a very grief illiterate society that we, we haven't really delved into this language. One of the things... Uh, you know, I talk now about the physical world. Like, do you remember when we were in the physical world? In the physical world, I would do lectures and retreats. And and I would do retreats on a loved one dying. I'd also do retreats on relationships ending and betrayal and divorce. But one of the things I would always say to people is, for me, it's always a death. There is the death of our loved one. But a divorce is the death of that marriage. 
A breakup is the death of that relationship. A job loss is the death of that income, that work environment, those people you were seeing in that setting. So they all are a death of something, and we are dealing with the death of the world as we know it. So when you think of it that way, you're like, oh, no wonder it's all grief. Oh, I get it now. A death, a literate society, that really that really strikes me because, I mean, you, you also just mentioned we can't even do funerals now, but I mean... We have such lack of ritual anyway around death, I think, compared to other societies. Um, And we also, I think, live in such a society that praises youth so much and extending life as long as possible. So, I mean, I think think death illiteracy kind of really hits home to me. Well, and I talk about that, you know, in America, we're almost, we think death is optional. And the truth is, it's, you know, just so devastating that we go through this and the number of people that have died with this. I, I, I mean, I figured it out the other day. Um, I forgot how many, but I divided up the average plane size um, and, you know, how many people had died. And I, I forgot what the number was, but it was like as if 540 planes had crashed in the last month and everyone died. I mean, I think it's hard for us to get the enormity of this and to really get what's going on. One of the things I've done to help people, because one of the things we don't realize is for those who've had a loved one die and actually who had a loved one die at any time before this, they were going to grief groups and all their grief groups suddenly got shut down. And grief is an isolating experience in general in the normal world and your loved one dies and then you have to just sit alone in your home with no grief group, no people coming over. How hideous is that? And because of that isolation, I started an online grief group. And I really thought when I started, because this was like, you know, early in March, oh, I'm going to do a little grief group. No one can go to, you know, any groups right now. People are dying. Let me just start this group. I'll probably have 40 people and we'll chat a thousand people entered the first day. It's now close to 15,000 people who, you know, are these invisible grievers that their loved ones have died and they're home alone and we don't see that. And so anyone who happens to be listening that's dealing with loss, you know, I hope they'll check out that group because we still want to virtually be together and that information's at grief.com they can find. But, you know, we have all those that have lost a loved one. Then we have so many of us that are worried well. We're actually at home. We're wondering when we can go out. We're getting our masks together. And our world is kind of okay, but there's this danger lurking. So we're, you know, having to traverse this new world that we weren't prepared for. And, uh, you know, one of the things I was talking about earlier that how we think, you know, we don't encounter death in our society. If you want to see death in America, you really have to see a movie or a TV show. Unlike other countries where you'll run into death. You know, when I was a kid, we'd be going to the movies or a park or something, and we'd get stuck behind a hearse. When was the last time you were stuck behind a hearse? It doesn't happen anymore. Even the dead move around our cities in white, unmarked vans. 
the next time you're, you know, behind a white unmarked van, you're behind a modern day hearse. So we've sanitized this world that has made us so death-fearing and death-illiterate. And if we don't like what we're seeing on TV, we can pause it and we get to real life and there's no pause button. There's no rewind button. So, I mean, in some way we could think also maybe of this moment as reminding us of our mortality maybe. And I wonder, you know, this is something I also discussed a bit with, with Deepak Chopra. I mean, is does this also provide us with a little bit of a wake-up call to to kind of the fact that we are alive and that that time is important to us? Well, it is an important pause. And, you know, you had mentioned the idea of rituals not happening. Uh, I had researched that the most recent book I was actually touring on when all this happened is a book I wrote, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. And in that, I talk about how I was seeing people having a harder time because they didn't have rituals. And now that's playing out on such a huge level. And then for all of us individually, we have to really think about what's coming after this. You know, we know from all the tragedies in history, some people are going to come out fine, some are going to come out with post-traumatic stress. One of the things I talk about is, and some people are going to come out with post-traumatic growth. How do we not just go through this, but grow through this? Is there a way to not minimize what's happening, but become bigger and expand in our life after this? Because it's going to, it's challenging us in ways we didn't expect. But, you know, I, when I was researching meaning, I looked at Viktor Frankl in concentration camps who, you know, found beauty in a sunset when they were thinking they were going to die any day. You know, how do we find the light in the darkness? And that's a really key factor to how can we find the light in what's going on now? You know, that just as you were saying that I kind of had this image of of all of us having, of course, to slow down a bit. And you thought you said Viktor Frankl finding light in the sunset. A lot of us, I think, maybe are having to take pleasures in a lot smaller, more mundane, everyday things, kind of focus on our neighborhoods. Um, uh, find pleasure in our relationships in the immediacy or or in our houses. And, you know, we used to have access to everything all the time whenever we wanted. But, I mean, we're kind of having to recalibrate right now. Well, and I look at pictures from, you know, three months ago, and there's so many images you could see of people all sitting together, whether it's on a bench or at a party, and all of us were together looking down at our phones, how we took that for granted, how we all got to be together and didn't talk to one another and didn't look at each other. I mean, if there's a get together in the future, if there's a party, if I'm in public, if we can be close to each other, I'm going to talk to you. I'm not going to look into my phone anymore. I got that lesson. I got that. I, I, I'm not taking that for granted anymore. Yeah. And I mean, to me, this keeps this keeps coming back to what is so central in your work in your latest book, which is finding meaning, the sixth stage of grief. And I'd love for you just to kind of expand on that because we're hitting on this right now. But if you could go further and talk about, you know, what 
What are ways to make meaning in this time? I know for Deepak, it was maybe a spiritual awakening, but I, 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 for you, what, what, what comes to mind or other examples of it? Sure. So first of all, when we talk about meaning, there's no meaning in a loved one's death. There's no meaning in a murder. There's no meaning in a virus. I'm not saying let's pour pink paint over this and pretend like it's all good. But what I am saying is meaning is what we make in us in response to what's happening. It's what we do after. It's how we see things. So, for example, when I think of finding meaning, I look around. I live in a little neighborhood in a suburb of Los Angeles called Studio City. And I maybe knew two neighbors' first names, kind of. And now 20 people on my block, we're all on a phone text. We all are texting one another. Someone says, I'm going to the grocery store. Does the elderly man at the end of the block need anything? All of a sudden, we went from not knowing each other to we have community. I see kids playing uh, in front of their yard with their parents. Like, I've never seen that. It looked like a scene from the 60s. Kids playing with their parents? Shouldn't they be at play dates or lessons? And yet they're having a relationship with their parents. That's good. So, you know, one of the other things we often think about is there's no good in this. But when we say there's no good, we can't find the meaning. We can't find the growth that can happen. We can't plant those seeds. I'll give you an example. I was working with a woman who was in the Las Vegas shooting. You know, the concert that happened, horrific shooting. Um, And she told me about, you know, being close to the stage. The shooting broke out. People were being killed in front of her. Uh, She ran under the stage for protection. And when I talked to her, obviously, I spent a lot of time hearing her story, witnessing her pain, witnessing her grief. And I talked to her eventually about finding the good in the horrific moments, just like Viktor Frankl did. And of course, her response was, there's no good in this. There was nothing, there was no good in this. And I said, let's rewind the story a few times and let's look for the good. And she was like, there is no good in a shooting. I said, can we just be curious? She went back and she told the story. And she told how she ran under the stage and saw people uh, being killed. And then she told me how There was a gentleman in a wheelchair that as everyone ran, he was left there sitting in his wheelchair. And some guys under the stage saw that and ran and grabbed him from his wheelchair and brought him under the stage with her. And she went, oh my gosh, that's the good. I said, yes, in the horrific moment, those guys were still taking care of one another and taking care of this gentleman in the wheelchair. And when we can see the good and the bad, it becomes seeds that helps us later find that post-traumatic growth. Because nothing is all good and all bad. And so those things to recognize this meaning that we can find is what's going to help us later. And so I think about that concept of meaning as so important to what we go through when a loved one dies and what we're going through in the world. Because really, we think of meaning as, oh, we're going to find meaning. We're going to start an organization. We're going to start a foundation. No, no, no. Meaning is just spotting those meaningful moments 
the kids playing with their parents that were on a text chain with one another. I have a friend in New Orleans. I heard New Orleans was, you know, going through tough times with the virus. I hadn't talked to her in years. We FaceTimed for 20 minutes. I found a meaningful moment in this disaster, in this tragedy. Can finding meaning also kind of be a, a, a spiritual meaning in this as well, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, it is such a spiritual experience we're having that what does connection look like? You know, I think of spirituality as connection. And, you know, what we were talking about early with the people sitting together at parties and all that disconnected. I mean, this is a moment of really learning how to connect, how to be with one another, how to value one another. Um, This is a moment that's changing everything, and it's sort of reminding us what's important. And we're dealing with this on so many fronts, from the loss of our world to the loss of jobs, to the loss of income, to the loss of connection. And so it is tearing down our foundation, but we can rebuild something different. And we can rebuild something better. And, you know, spirituality is evolving and changing and growing all the time. And this collective pause will become whatever we want it to be. You know, one of the things I wrote the book, one of the things that inspired me to write the book um, was that my younger son had died tragically. And I wanted to find my own meaning. And one of the things I kept thinking as I was doing that work is, would my son want his death to constrict my life, constrict my teaching, or expand it? And those are really powerful things to think about. You know, this pandemic is going to constrict us or expand us. And that is our choice. And that is a decision for us to make. So it is so much of a huge wake-up call to really look at how are we going to do this differently? You know, are we going to put profits before lives? Is there balances to be found? Is there safety? Is there ways to react better? You know, every time we've had a horrific situation around an illness, like whether it's been AIDS, there's enormous, I mean, some of the things that are probably going to cure this and help us with vaccines and things came out of AIDS. So, you know, when we look at horrible things that happen, something does come out of them that helps us medically, but also helps us spiritually. Well, David Kessler, thanks again for joining us on KCRW. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's all for today. You've been listening to KCRW's Foxhole. You can learn more about the show at kcrw.com foxhole or download the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and we'll see you next week.